podcast we break things down to the very last compound my name is summit aka the potty mouth of the south and my name is chris mitchell aka the actual factual you know it's one of those episodes where i'm not going to say too much Mm. because uh the the listener has already seen who we've got Mm -hmm. and it's less about the talking and it's more about the listening to the legend that we have uh the legend that is neil levine someone who has been part of hip-hop culture before i was born Right, he has been part of this culture and been promoting records. Obviously, after I was born, but promoting <laughs> records and and be. But he's been part of this culture for longer than I've been born, and has impacted it so in in such a way that when you listen to this episode, you really you truly understand, you know how his imprint and his impact on on hip hop and the albums levels. that we know and love. And it's so, levels. It's levels. Yeah. He was, he was an incredible he's, he's been an incredible guest i i i'm i'm kind of i mean it wasn't so long ago that i said i had a favorite episode bro i think i have to go to sleep after this like it, bro, yeah, but it, 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 it the 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 information you mean to digest right just to digest it bro my mind is yeah. blown like yeah this is probably my favorite episode yeah, and we, when you had a favorite, I only only said the skills episode <laughs> about three weeks ago. This is my favorite episode because I di- I didn't under I didn't know about the Biggie story, I, bro. I had no idea. With, with I did not know about the Biggie. No, story. I didn't know about the like. No idea. You're telling me this man crashed his whip and went to the court just so Capone. Well, I'm not going to spoil it. I'm not going to yeah. spoil it. But the 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 point is, is this is riddled with history. This is this is full of anecdotes and gems, and from someone who's been in the game for such a long time, uh, I'm genuinely ecstatic that we had Neil Levine on the podcast. And, Me too. And and you know the business of the music industry is so important, and it's really important that we profile those who have made such an impact. So I'm I'm super psyched for the listeners. You know, you guys have made this podcast a complete success over yep. the last few weeks getting us charting in in the uk in the us Colombia. australia Colombia too and Colombia now so yeah. now we're reaching south america so Columbia. you know we've got half of, we've got most of europe in the charts we're going to we're going down under and now we're going to south america we, we need to get jamaica and india on this thing man absolutely <laughs> <laughs> absolutely but no this is one for the fans this is one for the culture this is neil levine Breaking Atoms, check it out. It's a special episode of the Breaking Atoms podcast. We are in the presence of someone legendary in the music business, someone we want to geek out over some of our favorite albums, someone who's been in hip hop and been part of the culture since probably the early to mid 80s. Uh, we're talking about none other. Then Neil Levine of Panty Records. Neil, how you doing? Hey, what's going on? It's nice to be uh, on your show today. No, we we appreciate you. This is something that we're trying to do more of. Is uh, you know we speak to engineers, we speak to artists, we speak to managers, we speak to publicists. But what we also want to speak to speak to is people who've owned labels and who have been part of culture and and who have been part of some of the you know mo- you know the greatest albums of all time, things that have affected us growing up. We're in our mid thirties, so the the work that you've been a part of 
and the artists that you've worked with have have touched us in different ways so it's it, part of that is about getting under the hood of that and uh and and nerding out really and nerding out really cool well I'm, I'm here so happy to be here so there all right there we go so um let's let's start at the very beginning let's talk about how you kind of stumbled into the record industry given your your musician background so you 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 can play uh, musical instruments how did you stumble into the record industry and why as a as a musician you can see how difficult it is why would you stumble into the record industry well i'll tell you it, it all it all started many 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 moons ago so i started out as a saxophone player uh, so I play woodwinds. I'm still a sax player because if you're, you know, if you're a musician, you you look, you know, you're, you know, that's what you'll always be. So uh, I started out. Um, I knew I went to Berklee College of Music in Boston, uh, which at the time was the school. It still is. Um, and um, and I knew I was going to go to Berkeley when I was in, in like seventh grade. So music has always been been my main focus in my life and. Um, you know, I wanted to be a, a great jazz player. I mean, I, you know, I still love jazz and I love R&B and, and I have a big tenor sound, big fat uh, uh, tenor sound. So so I graduated from, from Berkeley College of Music and, um, and I, I moved to New York City to be a musician, to play music. And that's, that was my passion. So I studied my whole life and suddenly there I am and um, and I, I found myself gigging quite a bit initially and doing all types of gigs. And as a trained musician, I can read, I can write. I was a composition major in Berkeley, so I'm, 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 I'm an arranger. And so coming to New York City, um, I was suddenly with amazing, amazing players. It's like, oh, this is where everyone wants to go. And, um, and, and then I found myself starting to struggle a little bit financially being a musician. It's really, really difficult. And, uh, this was the late seventies, early eighties and synthesizers were just starting to take over. So instead of hiring a horn section, uh, uh, some cat would just play it, you know, on, uh, on, on, on a synthesizer and suddenly it was harder to get gigs. And the gigs I was getting were more club date affairs, meaning weddings, bar mitzvahs, social parties, whatever. And it wasn't, it wasn't what I really wanted to do. And I also felt that uh, being a musician, um, and I'm a soloist, so I, I just, I, I wasn't getting that much from it. And I, and I saw a life of, of struggling. I said, oh, all these great players are, are really struggling and I'm a young kid 22 years old just out of college I said I don't know man I, I need a day job so I so there's a, a free uh, newspaper in New York City I believe they went out of business just fairly recently called the Village Voice and the Village Voice was a was a weekly free paper and that's how I used to find gigs and you know someone someone's looking for a sax player so I, I went to the want ad job, you know, I went looking for a job. It's like, oh, okay, I'm doing this on the weekends, but I can really use a, a, a day job. And I saw this ad uh, working at a record distributor in, in New York. And uh, I went to apply for the job and it was a really grunt, shitty job. It was, it was uh, in the warehouse picking records. So, um, 
my job was getting the orders from the sales department and then going through the warehouse and boxing up the records and then giving it to the shipping guys. They ship it out to the record stores. And I was, I was loving it. I mean, I got the job. I said, Oh, they said, Oh, Neil, you know, we see you graduated in Berkeley College of Music and you know, it doesn't pay very well. And I said, I don't care. I just want to be close to records because I've always been, I've always followed record labels and, and, you know, reading label copy. So suddenly I was, I was happy. I'm like, Oh, I'm close to the records. I'm, I'm, but I knew that wasn't going to be my future. In this place, it was called Cardinal Export. And in this place was a big glass window. And all these salespeople were talking to record stores, talking about music. And I said, oh, I want that job. I can do that job. And, um, and I, I really you know, persevered and, and got to know the sales manager. And every day I'd say, hey, is there an opening yet? Is there an opening yet? And it's like, no, no, we'll, I will let you know. And I was just, you know, I was hustling, man. I was like, oh, I want in. I want that. I don't want to be working in this warehouse. I want to be talking about music. And, and the reps would come in from the record labels and present new music. It's like, oh, this is the best. So I became friends with this guy, Arthur Baker, who you probably know, um, know of him. So Arthur was also working there. So Arthur was a sales guy there too. So he, he was one of those sales guys. I was in the warehouse, but would hang out at lunch and Arthur was producing records. Uh, so Arthur just put out a record at that time called Planet Rock Soul Sonic Force, which was a seminal uh, recording. If your listeners don't know this record, you should. It had a craft work sample and it was it was really a uh, a record that um, that brought a lot of other things with it. So Arthur did that record and he was starting to make a little name for you know what 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 he was doing. And he um, and one day he said, you know, I'm I'm gonna be leaving this job. I'm starting a new record company. I'm starting a record company called Streetwise Records. I found these I found this group in Boston, these young kids in Boston called New Edition. I think there's something, I'm gonna develop them. And so I'll recommend you for the job, you know, like, so, so author quit. I took over th those accounts and suddenly I'm really talking about music. And I was, I just, I found myself and I found, and also hip hop was just getting started in those days so this is the early 80s and all these independent labels would be coming in uh and um have records and press them up put them in in their trunk they would come to the distributors and and want us to uh buy them on on, on consignment so we can sell them to the, the the record stores and um so i became the guy that all these labels would come to and talk to I, I, I fell in love with the music early on. Uh, kind of reminds me of Bebop or Dua. You know, it was like, it, just, it, it was just something really special. I had this affinity uh, towards it. So I, I became uh, that guy with all these little labels. And fast forward, um, stayed in distribution, got hired away, uh, you know, was in distribution. And then I said, you know what? Um, I needed uh, a friend of mine had a record label, Urban Rock Records, which was an early hip hop label. 
And um, and I thought I had I thought I knew everything about the record business, so I sold myself. I can run your company. I'll do the signings. I'll market. I'll promote. I'll do statements. Whatever I can possibly do, I just want to do this. So he hired me to do that, and we had a bit of success uh, with with that label. And I really learned the business because I really did do it all at that point. I was preparing statements i was i was signing artists i was marketing artists i was calling radio stations i I was in the hood you know getting the records played going into clubs whatever whatever i had to do and um and at that and hip-hop was just getting started like really early at that point and it was it was um you know new york was the mecca but it was starting to spread to other cities London was starting starting to pick up, but it was still really a New York-based movement at that at that time. And um, all these 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 independents started calling me and wanting my feedback. So I was like, "Oh, this is cool. Uh, I think I can build another business from this." So so I, I I went to my boss at the time and I said, "You know what?" So give you know I'm I'm going to start a new company and I'm going to it, it's a marketing business and but you'll be my first client and and the good thing is you can pay me half of what you were paying me I'll still come in a couple of days a week but I'll do it from my from from my apartment and and so he agreed and then my very first uh, account was uh, was Dougie Fresh the show uh, which was starting to to break and since. I knew all the retail stores because in any given city, there were only a handful of, of retail stores that really sold the music. You know, radio wasn't playing hip hop. No one was playing hip hop. No one thought it was going to last. There, were, there was a weekend, you know, in New York City, we, we had a Friday and Saturday night mix show. Uh, Chuck J- Chill Out and Red Alert, who are still around, still doing it, uh, were the guys. And... Um, and so, so I started, so, you know, from, from that point, um, I knew the retail stores, I knew, I knew the mix show guys. And so I started a company called Round the Globe Music. And I, right. I started that company in 1984. And I started it because I thought that since the music wasn't really being, uh, being heard in the mainstream, my job was getting these retail stores to play it and to support it and and i was the guy that really knew that retail business i knew which stores they were my friends you know we talked music all the time and they were also the guys that told me what records i should sign and what records i shouldn't sign so so i built around the globe music it started with the staff of one within within two years i had i don't know 20 people working there and we um, and we expanded. So we started doing retail marketing, and then from retail marketing, we went into uh, lifestyle street teams. We created a little magazine for retail called Global Assault. We um, we did video promotion. We did publicity. We did mix show. We did uh, you know at one point I had ice cream trucks out in Los Angeles passing out stickers. Whatever I had to do to wow. expose the music because. You know, again, uh, there there were especially in in black radio. Black radio didn't want to have anything to do with with hip hop. It was all about, you know, the standards, all that R and B, and they didn't get hip hop. They didn't support it. 
uh, we couldn't get our music on Soul Train. We couldn't. So no. So, so so you would think the traditional places to expose the music would would have been, um, you know, that that's where you would have gone. But we couldn't. So I, I had to come up with all different tactics to get the music heard. And um, so I did that for a number of years. And if I'm, and, and if I'm talking as, as far as too much, just let me know. Um, <laughs> no, no, no. You're absolutely fine. Karen, please. This is, this is what we, this is what we need to hear. So I, so, so I'm, I'm so, so I have around the globe music popping and we were popping. Like there was one year we controlled the number one, you know, records. And we, you know, so we had, if it was an independent, it, it, we touched it in some way from from next plateau was one of my clients with with salt and pepper or select records with uh, kid and play and chub rock or profile with run dmc or luke skywalker with the two live crew or out of seattle he had sir mix a lot with nasty mix in Orlando, Florida, had this guy DJ Magic Mike releasing gold albums over and over and over again. And so I was the guy kind of behind a lot of those things, you know, working those records. And that and that's how I really got a lot of my relationships because I, I worked with all of these companies. Normally you go into a company and you're in a cocoon in your company. But since I dealt with everyone, I kind of, you know, and I was a networker, still am. And um, I was able to kind of get my name out there, get around the globe's name out there. <clears throat> That's what used to bring me to London originally, because originally how I came up with the name Round the Globe Music was to represent U.S. hip hop uh, overseas. So um, so every year I'd go to meet them. And at that time I had from NWA, whatever stuff I was working, didn't have didn't have deals around the world. And so I did licensing deals with the independents uh, all over Europe. I, you know, again, I went to meet them each year, and I really, I, I really spent a lot of time in Europe, learning, learning the market, and realizing that wow, there's, there's an opportunity here. Um, I, I, I basically backed off that business because I would work my ass off, and by the time I got my my commission it's like i did all this for this much because no one was paying a lot of money for hip-hop records in europe you know the these guys are used to you know fairly being successful here in there it's like you make a few thousand bucks that's good you know so 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 it wasn't so it wasn't a lucrative business but uh but i love traveling i loved europe i loved london and and so it so it got me over there and learning the business but the whole time I said, you know what? Round the globe is set up like a record label, but I don't own shit. And I'm, and I'm subject to all these, these clients who, you know, if it goes poorly, I'm the first one to blame. And if it's successful, you'll never hear my name from, from them. So it's like, oh, this is, this is not like a long-term kind of future for me. And I want to have my own company. So I, so, um, so I, ha I always had, I always wanted my own record company um, and I had a, another record company early on, but I didn't need to talk about that. So I, so I, I, since, since I was hot, I got this deal with, with, it was Big Beat, you know, Atlantic at, at the time. And, um, and he gave me a, he gave me a deal, you know, Craig Kalman, 
who has been the chairman of, of, of Atlantic Records now for, I don't know, 17, 18 years and really done very well. And he gave me a real shot and, and, and an opportunity. And the first, uh, first artist I put out was this group DFC. Um, some of you listeners might know uh, as far as, as, as MC Breed and, and, and the DFC. So I signed DFC and, and, um, and, and we got this guy MC8 who was, who was hot because of the uh, straight up menace and menace to society. And so yeah, oh, we he's, had him on the show. he's a good guy, leg- legendary guy. And we got him and, and, and his mixing partner, this guy, DJ Slip, uh, working with me on it. And we got um, Warren G was involved with that record. And Warren didn't even have a home back then. This is long before Regulate. And so Warren was working on the record. And, and we, we ended up putting out the album and, and it did well for us being an independent. We sold about 250,000 albums. Atlantic didn't know what, what hit them. And, um, and I basically spent my own money in my own marketing business kind of promoting it because Atlantic didn't really do very much for, for the record at that time. And then I went back to, to my label partner. I said, you know what, this is great, but it was really a production deal. And I, and I didn't make money. And I said, you know, this is like really a production deal. I'm really looking for a joint venture partner. I need a partner. And so I, what I was told is let's put out some more records, you know, let's the show improve. And I said, I think I did already. I think I, you know, this is, and I, and, and I, and I need a partner and I need a partner. So, um, so I went to, so I, I, so I started shopping around and I, and I had a meeting with another one of my clients, Tom Silverman and, at Tommy Boy Records and Tommy Boy at the time was red hot. They were, they were super, super hot. And we were also promoting a lot of the Tommy Boy Records. So Tom knew me, we had a relationship and he ended up doing a joint venture deal with, with me, uh, which was a lovely deal at the time because they stayed out of my business. They helped fund it. And they did distribution and sales, but we did all the marketing and A and R and promotion. Um, and so that's how penalty got started. Um, so that so so at least that that takes me to the penalty dates. Listen, well, if we if we just pause there because we'll move forward, but if we pause that penalty, I want to backtrack very quickly um, about the Billboard charts before SoundScan. And how I guess manipulating might be a strong word, but how you were able no, to? No, it was manipulated. Ha- it was, it was not- so what I want to know. Is, so we come from an era where cassettes, vinyl, record stores were very important to us growing up. This is where we went to buy and consume music. For the listeners, especially the new listeners, talk about how you, how people in, in that time were able to manipulate the Billboard charts before SoundScan came in. Yeah, the Billboard charts was, in my mind, just another marketing tool. Like, oh, if you're on the charts, it's easier. It's easier to tour. It's easier to do this. It's radio will take you more seriously. So you wanted to have a Billboard charted record. At that time, uh, how Billboard tabulated their charts, they would call record stores. And they would ask them for their top sellers. So they'd say, okay, what are your top 30 sellers this week? And what are your breakouts? And there were the number of categories and depending on the size store and the, and what that title was on their chart, they billboard would assign a certain amount of points and uh, you know, you needed a certain amount of points to move up the charts to get your bullets. So, since we were so wired into the retail stores 
Um, you know, a lot of times they, they would do his favors. Now, you couldn't get a number one record. You couldn't get a top 10 record. But at those days, I, I, you know, I mean, whatever it was, we can chart it. We can put it on the charts. And then it's up to the record having some legs and developing. But the charts was and then by the time we were usually done with it is when the record was really starting to happen, especially, you know, in hip hop. Um, so and, and the same thing with, with radio for the Billboard singles charts. It was a combination of retail sales reports and radio stations used to report to Billboard. Now it's done by BDS, Broadcast Data Systems, which, which actually prints, there's like a fingerprint on the sound recording. And when a station plays it, a database will pick it up. But before it was like uh, the Billboard calling up uh, the program director and asking for their playlist for the week. And they would, again, assign a certain amount of points and they would combine that with the sales. And that's how they tabulated their singles chart. So we really, um, you know, we were really in there, um, you know, kind of uh, working those guys. Um, and, and usually, you know, I mean, most of the things we promoted, you know, pretty good not necessarily number ones but we were working for record companies it's not like today that anyone can just you know go on TuneCore or any of these 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 do-it-yourself kind of, of distribution platforms and get your music out on spotify before in order to get into those record stores you, you need to have something going on or else they would say no i don't you know i i can't you know there's only you know you only have so much floor space shelf space so, so it was it was a lot harder um, in that sense to get distribution. It's a lot easier to put out music now. There's a lot more of it out there, and it's a lot harder in some ways. But just to get it out there on Spotify and Apple and these other places, that, that anyone can do that. So I think there's a lot of really shitty stuff out there right now too. True, definitely. Before I hand over to Chris, I just want to point out the the plethora of work that you also didn't mention, which I want to highlight is the work with Tribe, um, the structure and the deal between Rapalot and Priority, your work with Priority with Stu Fine at Wild Stu Pitch. Stu Fine, uh, who's still who's still doing it. He's still signing records. I forget what he's co- what, what company's with now, but I run into Stu like, like every couple of years. He's still out there and, uh, and and a great record guy. And that was a great company. And, and and again, yeah, they were they were a key client for Gangstar and UMC and everything that that still was doing back then. Amazing. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, let's. Um. By the way, Neil, you are an amazing storyteller. I could literally <laughs> sit here and listen to you tell stories all day. I just well, want you to well, know. Thank that. you very much uh, because I talk a lot. Uh, all it's, right. It's no, no, it's perfect. What what was the significance behind the name Penalty? Like, why did you call the label penalty I know, recordings? I, guess I was just trying to be hard ass, dude, man. You know. <laughs> well, you, you you also had assault records as well. So yeah, I, I had assault, I, I yeah, to ask again, that. same thing. Just trying to be, you know, like uh, I, I, I don't know. I would have I would have probably taken assault with me, but assault was still tied to the Atlantic deal. So I had to start a new name. I had to start a new a new company. They didn't have me personally tied in when I started a new record company. Um, it's funny, both, you know, they, they were both Warner's you know, companies because Tommy Boy at that time was a Warner's own company. Uh, and, um, and, and of course, you know, my first label w- was also an Atlantic Warner's based you know, company. So I don't know, man, I just, um, 
it, it was clear. I thought it sounded dope, and, and that's it's all good. With. It's all good. I just I just wanted to ask. So I know I know penalty. We'll touch on um, Lord Finesse and Capone and Noriega at some point. But who were some of the artists that you wanted to sign to penalty that you may have just missed out on, or you just couldn't get the deal done? Um, well, I really wanted to do. Um, I wanted to do Junior Mafia. Um, I had a relationship with 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 Biggie, and um, and and I'll, I'll remember the me- I, I remember the meeting like it was yesterday. So he so he comes in, and Biggie was already blowing up, and says, "Yeah, I got this group." And Penalty, I was like a, I was just getting started. People really knew me from my marketing company, so they didn't really know Penalty. They knew me and they knew round the globe music. And so, so we came in and I remember, uh, you know, little Kim came in and she was like a kid at the time. She was like wearing like Bobby socks and she really looked young. And he's like, no, she's going to be our diva. And he had it all laid out, you know, he was a visionary guy. And, um, and we tried to sign it and we weren't able to get it done. Um, that, so that's something. And then I watched it blow up and I watched, you know, Kim's career continuing uh, o- over the years. So that that's that's what I really wanted. Uh, one I missed that I could have probably had was, was Jay-Z um, because Jay used to come in and, and pay me to promote his shit. You know, Jay was like out there putting out records. He, he just put out a singles deal through uh, Payday Records, uh, Patrick Moxie. And um, that didn't work out for whatever. So he's looking around for a new label. And, and I remember, you know, him and, and, and Dane came in to me and, and I, you know, I, I had a relationship and, you know, they laid out everything they're going to do and everything that he has done. It's like, but I get this pitch all the time. It's like, oh yeah, cool clothing and this and that. And, and, and I think Capone and Noriega, probably they were already signed. So maybe I was making a little bit of name for myself a penalty and they thought it could be a good fit. And, um, and I didn't do the deal. I, um, I think I might've made an offer, but it probably wasn't the offer they were looking for. I don't even really remember. Uh, and they and our guy who was working for me, uh, Ray Ray, um, ended up going over to, to, um, to Will Sokoloff, who uh, Will uh, had a company, Freeze Record. Will is the original guy, Sleeping Bag and, and Fresh and another legendary guy. And, and so he, he left my office, Ray, and brought it over to Will. Will signed it, you know, that, and, and that was the Reasonable Doubt album. Uh, which, you know, is a classic and, um, you know, I missed it. It's like, so, you know, you miss things uh, occasionally, but that, that was the one thing. And then, you know, watching Jay now is like, you know, billionaire entrepreneur with, you know, all these businesses and, you know, he really did it. You know, I give him a lot of credit. He really, he really did it, man. You know, so, um, you know, we, we were speaking to, um, Scott Free from Loud Records and mm-hmm. he has a very similar story to you. He's like, we nearly signed Jay and you can hear a slight tinge of regret and disappointment in his voice. Um, but everyone just says the same thing, you know, like seeing him now is just, it's just incredible. I, I incredible. think I would, I think most executives would have a Jay-Z story. Yeah. I mean, and, and again, we were, you know, we were closest to the streets at that time. So it, it made sense, you know, um, we also didn't have full, you know, Will, 
had a deal with Priority Records. So Priority is, was the distributor of it. And he ended up losing it, you know, to Def Jam. And I probably would have lost it too. Um, so, you know, it wasn't meant to be with me. And I guess it wasn't, you know, it was meant to be. It, what, whatever happened, it was meant to be, you know. Yeah. So. yeah, good way to look at it. Let's talk about Lord Finesse and The Awakening. So that album is, is, is one of my favourites. Me and my wife bonded over that album. I remember being in a record store in London, Notting Hill. And she. this is before she was my wife. And she let out a scream. So I'm thinking something's wrong with her. No, she found a vinyl copy of The Awakening with the instrumentals, hence the wow. scream. So wow. I had to I had to buy it for her. It was all part of the courting process. You know, I buy her the record, she'll like me more. Tell yeah. me about working with Lord Finesse and signing him. What was that relationship like? It was great. It still is. So Finesse happens to be uh, still a good friend of mine. I talk to Finesse all the time. Um, not all, you know, I talk to him every few times a year. So that's all the time, you know, like, you know, we stay in touch. He checks up on me. I check up on him and, and I really pursued him. Um, I, I knew that he, from wild pitch, he had, he was, I think he had a, he put out a record on Warner's and he was just starting to look around for a new deal. And his attorney called me up and said, would I be interested in Lord Finesse? I said, yeah, I'd be interested in Lord Finesse. Um, so we got into business and, um, you know, and, and to this day he's saying, you know, working you know, pen, with us, you know, penalty was, was one of the highlights of, of, of his recording career, which to me is, is so nice to hear. And, um, you know, he was always a visionary he always, and he also, he was also very good at the business. Um, you know, like I was trying to do a publishing deal. No, I can't do publishing. That's how you, you know, so, so, you know, he's, he's, he's a guy and he continues to work. He continues to be out there, continues to, to, um, you know, to, to just amaze me. So I loved working with, with, with Finesse and, um, and I consider him a friend. That's great to hear. My, my soul is happy. Yeah, no, it's cool. No, anyway, he's such a great guy. Yeah, he's such a great guy too. I mean, he's on a, and 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 I feel bad for I feel bad for a lot of the these cats from from that time because you know COVID is taking these guys off the road. Like like these guys make make their living going to Europe, going to uh, South America, Japan, wherever. Like every year, and these guys have been off the road now for damn near a year, and and I don't know when they're going to be fully back on the road. So it's it it's a tough time for a lot of these cats. Yeah, agreed, agreed, agreed. Before I hand over, uh, I hand over to Summit. Um, we're going to talk about the War Report and the importance of that album because. Um, I was actually in the studio about a year ago and um, I was working with my producer on my new project and I, he wanted to know, how do you want your album to sound in terms of the mix? And I played Iraq See the World for right. him and he had never heard that song before and he lost his mind. He's like, what, what is this? Like, wh where do I get this? And he was I'm like, you've never heard The War Report. So before I pass over to Summit, I just want you to know, and you probably do know this, that The War Report has been the subject of many heated debates in the studio and the barbershop for many, many years. <laughs> That's funny. No, no, it, 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 it's really a classic. And um, I'll kind of go over, uh, do you want me to talk about that record for a second? Uh, yeah, I mean, 
Yeah, we, 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 we'll definitely talk. I mean, we could spend, I think, two, three hours on that record alone. Well, I'll, 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 I'll just kind of... So I, I signed Capone and Nori. They didn't have a demo, uh, you know, at the time. So uh, Tragedy, uh, who, uh, who, who's the, who, who's the person that brought them to us, um, Martin Moore was, was at the uh, label, um, and Tragedy and I, we knew one another because because around the globe music because I promoted tragedy's music back then so he brought them in and they just kind of spit it's like oh shit it was so real they were 18 and um we signed them right away and I think I might have started as like a single deal it's like okay well it's dope but you know we're in a song bay you know it's like okay let's 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 record and 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 it quickly turned into an album project um and um, making the war report was probably more drama than I've ever had. Uh, first of all, I'm a, I'm a pretty new label with, you know, probably penalty had maybe three or four people working there. I mean, it was, you know, we were a small company. It's like, oh, you know, so I'm doing it all. Going to the studio, listening to mixes. And, and during the recording uh, process, you know, Capone's mom passed away uh, suddenly. And she was like the the mom of them all. She so suddenly you had, you had this, uh, a real disruption uh, in their home life. And, you know, and by the way, I signed them. They just got out of jail. So, so it's like, these guys were shooters. I mean, this is some real shit. This isn't like make believe. The war report's not make believe. The war report is some real fucking gangster shit and drama. And making the record was always, you know, it was a lot of drama. It was like, and then I didn't realize that Capone had a charge against him, a pending uh, gun charge. So making the record. And then he finally came to me and he said, Neil, I got this, this gun charge. And it's like, really? You know, I didn't know. So, um, so I ended up, so we're, so he was going away to jail. The album wasn't nearly finished. He was being locked up and it's like, oh, fuck. And I'm, I'm a little independent label and I got, I got money invested and I'm like, oh, you know, I, I, and, and I just had a feeling it was going to be something. And it was still really early going, but I just had this feeling. So, so I ended up going to court um, and Capone tells his story better than I do. But, um, you know, I, I just got a brand new car and I'm driving to Queens, New York, going to court. And I ended up getting in a car wreck. And I knew I had to get to the court. So I left the car where it was. I said, I'll, I'll deal with that later. Uh, I ended up getting a ride to the court. And there was an old judge sitting on the stand. It's like, oh, uh, and, I'm, and I'm there. And, and, the, and the attorney's with, with Capone. And the attorney says, uh, I, uh, Your Honor, before you, I do sentence my client, uh, we have someone that would like to address the court. So I come up. I said, you know, uh, I'm here. My name is Neil Levine. I have this company, Penalty. Whoa, rap label? What is that? A rap company? Blah, blah. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, as a matter of fact, we release rap music and blah, blah, blah. And I said, and, 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 this, and, and this is one of my artists, and he's signed to an up-and-coming rap group, Capone Noriega. Capone Noriega. Blah, blah, blah. And he was like, was not having it, man. And so I ended up uh, pleading uh, with the court to keep him out a little bit longer. It's like, because we're in the middle of making this record and it wasn't about him. It was about a financial hardship to me. 
Because if you if you lock him up now, then my little business is out of business. So you've got to, you know, please. So they they gave us, I think it might have been a week or two, you know, to, to so so we didn't lock him up that day. We went and that the next day we shot top of New York. Uh, the TONY video was shot the next day after the courthouse. Then the judge got sick and the one or two weeks turned into like several months. So we we're able to basically finish up the recording. You know, if you listen to that record, he's calling, he's calling in from jail, um, skit. So we ended up getting locked up at the, uh, you know, near the end, but we basically recorded all the videos that we're going to record. We got most of the records done. And, you know, so there was just so much drama, everything, all drama, 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 drama. And I think, I think that's why the record's so magical. I mean, it really, it really, really turns out it's not like a studio kind of stuff. And the, and tragedy um, was, was such a part of, of, of the war report. He, he was, he was kind of, you know, the big brother uh, to, to the guys. And, and, uh, and I give him a lot of credit. I give Martin Moore a lot of credit, you know, who, who was part of my team, um, and, and of course the guys. Um, so it, it it was a it was a it was a lot of drama, uh, but it was magical. And looking back, it was a, a magical time, you know, for me too. I never knew the story about the court date. Yeah, I never knew that. Yeah, yeah it was crazy. That's, that's, uh, that's crazy. new for me. It's new for me as well. I thought genuinely Neil I thought we knew everything there was to know about the making of the album I've never heard that yeah, story no that's that's the real deal um and and again it, it's um so, so so I know Pone tells that from from time to time because I've heard him say oh yeah Neil Levine wrecked his car and still made it to court <laughs> so so yeah so um but but if I didn't go to court that day there wouldn't have been the war report um because it was you know we had a it was really pretty early on in, in the recording process. That's great. We we um we spoke to Capone and Daz Dillinger very recently. It's a, it's a it's a lost interview because the the audio got corrupted. But we spoke to them about because they're doing an album together. And we spoke to them about the the similarities and differences between Dog Food and The War Report. Both considered classics, but the way in which they're mixed are very different. Whereas, you know, the war report has very gritty style, but they're both undeniable classics. Yeah. But it's it's the thing about the war report and the legacy it has is it, it's captured a moment in time. It's actually captured a moment in time where you've got these two young people from New York City who have, who are telling their story. And it's just like seminal. It's an actual seminal album. Um, and I know for, for penalty, it's a, it's a legacy. But for for hip hop in general, what would you what would you say is the legacy of it? I mean, I, I, I think you, I think you said it right. I think it's, it, it, it marked a period in time. It was very special. It marked a period in New York. It also, um, you know, there was a whole East Coast, West Coast beef going on, and it, uh, I'm not proud of this, but it, it helped fuel that. Uh, you know, the answer to the Dog Pound record, you know, helped fuel that. Um, so it, it was, you know, and we were all like, you know, young and kind of grinding it out uh, but I, I I think it is a seminal uh, a, a record because it really shows what New York was like back then and these guys again they were they were real shooters so this was you know Nori is, is, is a very good friend of mine now I love him uh, so we, we taught you know he's such a different person now although he was always sweet then 
Um, it was just a product of, of what was happening, you know, in the streets and where he was growing up. And, um, you know, and to watch him and, and, and watch Pone, to watch the, the men that they've become. I'm so proud of both of them. I, I really am. They're both amazing guys. Mm. You know, I talk to Capone from time to time, too. Uh, but Nori um, just has a special place, you know, for me in my heart. Yeah, and, and, and so with, with the... With Capone going to jail, then for penalty, you're going right. We need we need to follow this up with 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 the success of the War Report. When did you first with with Noriega? When did you first see his star power? Oh, right away, I saw it right away. I mean, immediately, immediately, immediately. And I said to Nori, you know, when Capone got locked up, I said, "Man, you know, we got something going on. You need to continue this movement, and you, you need to you know start making these solo records." And that's when we um, and that's when we started working on the NORE record. But long before that record came out, I remember being at a conference in Las Vegas at at a convention, Gavin, which was a convention out there, and um, and Capone. Uh, the War Report was, I guess, out, but it was a street thing. It wasn't like a you know like you know like didn't blow up like right away. It was more of a street thing. And so I remember being out there with Nori and everyone just gravitating towards him. It's like, oh. And I remember going to the bar one night and everyone followed us because he was, he had to just, you know, it was, it was something about him. It was, he had such a magnetic personality. And I remember, you know, Puffy being there and all the big players being there and everyone just drinking. I also, I remember that bar bill I got stuck with. And I wasn't like, I didn't, I wasn't rolling in dough like, like that. You know what I mean? So, so I'll never forget that, but he had this quality about him. Like right away, I, I knew he was a star. He was also a visionary. Um, so I saw that really early because of who he was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Talk about, you know, the second album, because I'll, I'll be honest with you, Neil, I'm going to be, have a transparent moment with you being such a fan of the war report. When I heard N-O-R-E, I was like, hmm, this is different. Um, there's some commercial records on here. But Super Thug blew up over here. We were having like mosh pits at college to that song. Super Thug um, was a big record over there, I know. Yeah, I know. it was huge. Um, how did how did Nori and the Neptunes connect? And what were your initial thoughts about the, the, the collaboration? Um, we found them through, uh, I think through Pharrell's cousin, and they were just, you know, making beats down in Virginia. So Pharrell and Chad were just getting started in Neptunes and uh, thought their sound was really cool. So we kept them working. We brought them into New York. No, they weren't really recording with, with anyone at that time. We, we started making records. And, the, uh, and Super Thug was, uh, was supposed to be a remix for NORE. So we had them doing the remix. We're like kind of finishing up and so, okay, well, we felt that NORE was a good signature, first single, um, uh, Trackmasters were hot. That was a Trackmasters record. And, um, and then they, they flipped that record and came up with Super Thug, which we all thought was a brilliant record. Um, but I wasn't sure about a single. It's like, and, and so, you know, so we, we decided to, um, to, you know, meet with radio people and, 
and kind of vibe the record out, you know, play a bunch of records and see what our first single should be. And hands down, Super Thug was no. Everyone said, Super Thug's too hard. It's not going <laughs> to fit on the radio. It's like, it sounds like nothing else. I can't see that record working. And we had this Chico DeBage record on. Everyone said, oh, the Chico record, Chico's hot. It's more of a radio record. And um, so we're kind of debating and we ended up going with NRA. So we're going, you know, so, okay, we're picking the next single. And, and I think we still went with the right record first. The NRA record was a really great record and great video and good signature song. But then, then we're thinking about this next single and Nori comes to me and said, Neil, we gotta do Super Thug. I said, Nori, we, we played it for all these radio cats and no one's saying they're gonna support it. And, and Europe, forget it. It was like, oh. so, um, so we, so, um, so it's like, oh, so Neil, you gotta see the reaction, the club reaction every time this record is played. I said, I don't know, Nori, I, I love the record too. I'm just telling you, we need to get, we, we need to get this next record on the radio because you know if we're going to go to the next level we're going to have to get a we're going to have to get something on the radio because war report got n no radio play i mean it's zero it's like uh it, you know the the, the 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 cars and jeeps those were our radios you know no commercial stations would touch it so um so he said no neil i'm telling you i'm telling you like we're you know, we're arguing it's like oh, i don't know man i'm just telling you what he said you got to come come to see see the show so um and you know we we you know penalty always got kind of never got the props whatever so uh, hot 97's doing their big summer jam and they didn't invite us to to perform they didn't invite nori to perform so a friend of mine uh name is un who had Undius record uh, and, and Un had Cam and Cam had a hot record at that time. So Un called me up and says, I want, I want Nori to perform with, with Cam at Summer Jam. I said, oh, that'd be great. Thanks, man. Because, you know, we're not able to do it. And, and then, so I, so I went and, um, and I watched, I, I think it was Flex or someone played the record, you know, between sets and, Everyone went crazy because it was the biggest club record in New York City. Everyone went crazy. And at that time, Hot 97 was giving me no love. And the program director saw that reaction of that record. The next day, or that Monday, because on that Monday, she programmed the record. And for the entire calendar year, it was the second most played record at Hot 97 in New York City. It was like the anthem, the anthem, the anthem. And then from there, it just kind of spread out. So it was, um, you know, it, it was a process to get there. And to this day, I just heard, um, so Pharrell was just on Nori's Drink Champs. And, um, and, and I know he's, and I've seen him say it before, that was the record that was the most special to him because it was his first hit um and i always knew pharrell was going to be a star too because he always went like like he wanted me to fly him out to the video to be in the video i said pharrell i, I don't fly producers out. we're an independent i don't fly producers out to be in videos you know probably a bad mistake but he flew himself out you know to be in the video he did what he had to do and he loved being in front of the camera the same way as he loved being in back of it you know and 
and that helped really launch his career you know so it was it was a man and we we recorded a lot of neptune's records at that time you know so yeah i think i think um when you look at the success of the neptunes you know often people will look at you know khalees jay-z all those big names and you know they deserve their credit but noriega and super thug i think that was the record that let people know what time it was, particularly with the Neptunes' new sound at the time, because before that they were doing stuff for SWV and it was dope. It was the R&B stuff, but that Neptune sound, that kind yeah. of bling, bling, bleepy sound, I trace it back to that record. And I could be wrong, but that's where I trace it back to. Yeah. So Penalty, I'm not sure what happened, like, you know, after the Nori release, but you re- you revived the label i think in the mid 2000s with Ryko disc there was a there was a relationship yeah, there yeah i kind of i kind of dabbled i i, I ran um, i ran Ryko discs a business and and so I, I put out some records uh it was more of an imprint but we put out um j live we beat put nuts. out uh beat nuts we put out ali shaheed muhammad record which was a beautiful record um a few other records at that time so i i but but it wasn't like my company and, and they didn't really understand the culture and understand the music it wasn't really a uh, i appreciated them uh, doing what they did for me but it wasn't really a cultural fit and, and so it was was trying to put a a, a, a a square peg in a round hole kind of it's like uh but i i and, and i did it at a few other places too but um it wasn't until um really 2014 that i relaunched the company as really an independent you know again not associated with any uh other company or company that i owned mm-hmm. that beat nuts record was really good by the way i love the greg nice single and, and, so and, and we had and, and we and and akon was just breaking had one song out and we got akon at the right time you know um uh, not when he was cheap going to be a superstar yeah i mean it's like you know, it's like, oh, so um, that that was kind of lucky. And, and those guys are great to work with, too. I, you know, I love, you know, love those guys. And um, they, they, they were a lot of fun. Dope, dope. I, I, I know you made, you made the transition to kind of EMI and Sony later, but I, I love the story about you signing Fat Joe. Because obviously you have an existing relationship with Fat Joe from way back, yeah. You know, going to his apartment in the Bronx and all that. So, talk to us about the trying to convince Fat Joe to sign to EMI, well, and then I, the, I, the first single he puts out is amazing. All right. So for me, I'm, I'm really an indie guy, right? So, so I'm figuring out what I'm going to do, and I got hired by EMI Music. So suddenly, I'm working for a major and big job. Uh, you know, starting a new division. I was I was courted by the chairman uh you know the company and it was a real opportunity for me um and i was like okay well this could be you know i'm I'm the independent guy but it's good to you know it's nice to get a paycheck a real paycheck it's nice to be part of an organization that that's global so so i just started and i heard fat joe just got released from from his uh from, from from his record deal you know atlantic and um so i track him down and he was in the process of signing another deal at Koch. Um, and that time Koch was hot too. They were, you know, they were, they were killing it, you know, they're called E1 now, but they, they, they were killing it. So Joe and Joe had a relationship there with Alan Grumblatt because Alan Grumblatt, the, the president of Koch was at Red for years when Joe's first, that's where Joe's first record came, uh, came out through Red. 
Um, and so, you know, I, I, I got him on the phone. I said, Joe, I'm, I'm just started this new division. You're the perfect artist for it. And it's like, no, Neil, the thanks, man. But uh, I'm signing this deal at Koch. I said, I said, man, he said, give me an opportunity, bro. Come on. We've known each other a long time and, and didn't really take it that seriously. And I really, I went at him hard. I said, man, you know, you got to do it here. You got, I didn't take no for an answer. Figure I just started this job. I need to put points on the board quick. And I knew Joe can make hits, you know, like Joe always comes up with, with hits. And, um, I finally got him to listen to me. It's like, all right, well, you know, I said, Joe, what's it going to take? And we, and we made him a great deal. I mean, Joe made a lot of money from me, that record. And he, and the first record would, I was making rain and, you know, Wayne was getting hot, but it wasn't the little Wayne that it really became over the next couple of years. So Wayne was on the hook record was just a classic record. I mean, it was a great record. And that record we put it out and we sold millions and millions and millions of ringtones. That's when ringtones are really popular. We sold millions of those things. And, um, and it, was a, it was a huge record. Uh, within the EMI system, it was the second biggest digital single for the year. Uh, so it kind of cemented my, you know, I, I was in the job for maybe eight weeks. Maybe it came out, maybe I was there 12 weeks and I got the number one record at the company. It's like, oh, how great. So. That that was that that was that was just a classic uh, moment for me, um, and Joe, you know, I thank you very much for trusting me with that record. It was a great record. I mean, Joe, Fat Joe has Fat Joe has an uncanny ability to make brilliant music, and has done throughout his whole career. He could be, he, he, I mean, just now he's he's done Sunshine, yeah, um, and it's an incredible record, and he's probably one of the greatest A and R's ever in rap music. Agreed. Um, and you've worked with him directly. We see this from from being a, from being a listener, but for someone who's worked with him, he has an uncanny ability to make hits. He and does. I, and he's he's just, well, he's a student. He really he's, he studies the music. He's a true hip hop head. Um, he's really smart, and he's also a sweet guy. So everyone loves him. So you know, working with him was was you know made my life a lot a lot easier having you know artists people love and and uh and he understood media because he was in he was in media for a while he started putting out records for years and and you know my relationship goes back to the you know to to, to the digging in the crates days so so i i i know him from his his small apartment in co-op city to to you know the superstar that that he became so um, but that was a that was a fun moment for me because um, I'm in this big system and suddenly I got a hit record and I'm and I'm and, and everyone's like, who's this Neil Levine guy? It's like because if you're you know if you're in the culture and you know the music, then 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 you know me. But I haven't been I haven't had these major label gigs. You know I've been I've been you know fighting it out on the fucking streets to make my shit happen. So mm. that that was a that was a fun moment for me. That was a really fun moment. I mean, Sumi, I'm, I'm, I feel full of knowledge. I have, I have mm-hmm. no more questions to ask. I think this was a, this was a history lesson in, in, in podcast form. And Neil, like, you know, I know we've shown our love and we've waxed lyrical about the war report and the awakening, but I'm going to be honest with you. I had no idea that you were so 
involved in so many of my favorite records and artists until we did the research for this for this episode and it's, well, it's really mind-blowing to me it's I, mind-blowing I really, to me and i think go ahead no no i just appreciate it thank, thank you it's really really nice to hear no you're you're um we, we, our our whole thing here at breaking atoms is really to celebrate the people who have given us so much you know years of their lives and their talent and their energy into this thing called hip-hop here we are coming after you and being able to speak to you and being able to to share these stories and you know make a living from this culture and it's really important that we give back and we share and you know we stand on the shoulders of giants so i want to thank you so much for for your efforts for your time for everything you did at penalty emi and i really want to thank you for wearing the signature hat that's made cool. by no uh, no it's cool and you know if your fans want to find me um uh i am neil levine on instagram and uh just find me shout shout out man we, and i'm still looking for hot music still in it uh i'm, I'm currently uh i'm working with a new publishing company signing writers signing producers um so you know still consulting a number of projects so i'm still out there kind of uh, trying to move it forward. Let us know what you need. Let us know what you need because uh, we can we can always plug you. I'm, I'm, we were always in music, so if you're looking for producers or, and just let us know because um, we'll be happy to help. Obviously, cool. we don't have the we don't have the expertise you have, but I think I think you've always been about ownership, and that's been very important to you and creative control. And I think uh, it's been absolutely wonderful talking to you. And thank you so much for cool. for joining. All us. right, thanks guys. All right, bye. A special thanks to Neil for joining us and and for providing us the gems that we needed on this fine evening. This is I'm Bro. still I, I, st- I listen to that and I'm going, oh my god, we Bro, were, we, that we, was, we are so grateful. We are so grateful. That was soul food. Yeah, we are absolutely grateful to have mm-hmm. that kind of knowledge. Is like I've I've learned so much. Bro, he, you know, he um his independent spirit, I love that, I like I love it, and it's not, it's not one of these things where you know, he's out he's out there talking about independence, independence because you know at one point it got cool to be independent, but this is someone who I think has an independent spirit in every area of his life, and you know he's championed a lot of the artists that you know we grew up listening to and that we love, and it, bro, I, like I said to him, I had no idea. That he was outside moving like that. I knew the name. I know penalty. Shabazz the disciple. We didn't even get into that. We didn't get to that, yeah. But bro, that that was that was history, man. History. Not tooting our I'm not tooting our horn. I'm just saying, like, if you're a lover of hip hop music and culture and you want to connect dots and fill in gaps that you didn't know was there, listen this to this episode, episode and share yeah, it. And share it. And no, share no, it. This is information. Definitely. No, definitely, definitely. I, I, I mean, just his ingenuity in the in the early part of his years, mm. from switching from from being a musician to being in that warehouse and knowing where he wanted to get to that drive, mm. hustle. You know, people talk about hustling. That he hustled and he made something and he did it and he had that drive and and that should be an inspiration to anyone listening to this podcast. That's inspirational to see what he's done and where he's got to. Um, so no, thank you to Neil. This is. Um, now, honestly, I'm 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 really blown away. So, thank you to Neil. Um, I just yeah, I I wouldn't listen to that over and over again. That is <laughs> reference point. That is that's in, yeah. We'll it's a, have it's him a, back. It's a research tool. 
yes, we will have him back at some point to, to delve in deeper. Uh, but as always, you can follow us on social at Break the Atoms, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Chris's personal is I Am Kinetic. Mine's is at Hip Hop Chronicle. We are on Clubhouse with the same names. Ch- chatty, I am house, chatty House. The Chatty House. I Am Kinetic and at Hip Hop Chronicle. This has been incredible. Thank you to Neil. Until next time, peace. Peace. peace.